I dedicated my book to my son Jonathan, the only constant man in my life, to my family and friends who've loved and supported me through the good and the bad days, and to Owen Leeming, my staunch friend and the person who totally changed the course of my life. My autobiography was published in 2003, so obviously some of the timing might seem a little odd. Preface I've condemned the press for intruding into my private life and that of others, so why am I now prepared to let the world at large into my life and my heart? To be approached by a major publisher 15 years after my departure from mainstream television was a flattering request. My son has always wanted me to write the story of my life. It's also been suggested that my book might help other women who've experienced similar trials and tribulations to realise that you can pick yourself up, dust yourself down and start all over again. Being well known is no barrier to pain and hurt. I believe that just as you give love, it flows back to you. If, after a painful relationship, one retreats into a permanent shell, you miss out on all the best things in life, love and affection. And last but not least, so many people have sat in judgment upon me without knowing the facts, they might as well be acquainted with them and then see how they feel. So that's why I spent the winter of 2002-2003 joined to my computer with an umbilical cord. I should add that I've changed a few names to save embarrassment for some people. I've been financially independent from the age of 17 and a half. Not one of the men I married had any money, so that was not my motivation. My divorces haven't brought me substantial settlements, only heartache. I haven't needed a man financially, but I do need to love and be loved. In this book, I've used a quote from Audrey Hepburn's character in Roman Holiday. She said, I was born with an enormous need for affection and a terrible need to give it. Well, that's how I feel. I've loved not wisely, but too much. I have been blessed with wonderfully supportive family and friends. I have a son who's also my friend. Despite his youth, he's given vital support in the last few years. I'm proud of him and love him very much. I have my health and a renewed excitement in and expectation of life. I now have freedom and a chance to move on to pastures new. Looking back, I don't really think I would have changed any of it. If I hadn't made the mistakes I made, there would have been others. There is no gain without pain. And in the great scheme of things, I see the balance in my life as being more weighted on the side of the good than the bad. Acknowledgements. I'd like to thank Jeremy Robson for his belief that I had a story worth telling and the ability to write it, and to his kind and helpful assistant, Melanie Letts. In my working life, special thanks go to Ron Evans and the late Tom Salmon, who had faith in me and spurred me on to higher achievements, and to Alan Prothero, who appointed me to the newsreading team at the BBC. Thanks also to Jane Donovan and Rob Dimery, who edited the book with sensitivity and were very sparing with the scissors. I take my hat off to art director Richard Mason, who sifted through dozens and dozens of photographs and came up with an entertaining and meaningful selection. 
A big thank you must go to Yvonne Ridley, who mentioned me to Jeremy Robson, and the rest is history, as they say. It's difficult to single out individuals for thanks because so many have helped over the years. They know who they are. However, I would like to express deep gratitude to Sue McFarlane, Jean Mays, Sarah Marshall and Chloe Smiley, who've always been there for me in the darkest hours. I must thank John Turner, who patiently read this book and corrected my punctuation. It was a big job. I may be able to speak the English language, but grammar was never my strong point. My solicitor, Sue Black, saw me through two divorces and was kind and supportive, way beyond her professional status. Apart from loving them, I give thanks to the following. My father for my education and a strict upbringing. My mother for her unquestioning love and generosity. My sister, because she's my sister and friend. My son, the best production of my life and the source of my greatest joy. Owen, my mentor, inspiration and friend. Patrick, for helping me produce Jonathan. And Eric, who gave so much love, adventure, passion and romance. All my friends for their love and unstinting loyalty. And I would like to thank the viewers for their kind letters, good wishes and support throughout my career in television. Here we go. Chapter One. Childhood and Marriage. My entry into the world was inauspicious. My mother almost gave birth in the lavatory. If that was my first view of the world, it might account for my outlook on life and some of the disasters since. I was born in 1942 in the middle of the Second World War and have hazy memories of doodlebugs or V1s, the flying bombs used by the Germans to blitz London. They made a whining sound and while you heard them, you were safe. When the whine stopped, they dropped and exploded. There was an air raid shelter in the garden and I remember being taken there in the middle of the night during the bombing raids, to which we were highly susceptible as we lived in Woolwich, southeast London. Woolwich boasted the Woolwich Arsenal where armaments were made. It was an important town on the River Thames. All I remember of the river was that it used to stink of rotten eggs in hot weather. Now the Woolwich Arsenal comprises luxury apartments costing an eye-watering sum. My maternal grandmother rented 109 John Wilson Street, a large house on four floors. Because the house was on a hill, one bottom room was below pavement level at the front and the kitchen at the back was at garden level. The kitchen come sitting room was the only room for which I can remember the decoration. The wallpaper was a pattern of autumn leaves, very dark and oppressive and on the mantelpiece stood two Dutch china figures, a boy and a girl carrying baskets in which we'd put spills for lighting the coal fire. There were two more floors with two larger rooms on each, and then an attic with two rooms large enough to take beds and accommodate servants, except we didn't have any, far from it. The house may have been large, but it was old and had no modern conveniences. The lavatory was outside, and in winter, you had to break the ice on the pan first thing in the morning. Despite this, it did have mains drainage. Toilet paper was an unheard of luxury. 
squares of newspaper suspended from a string was our double velvet. There was a cold water tap in the kitchen and we heated water in a kettle on a gas stove. Large amounts of hot water had to be boiled in a huge copper in the scullery across the yard. It was here that Mummy did the washing, scrubbing it down on a corrugated iron washboard and squeezing most of the water out by pushing the clothes through a mangle. A large tin bath was filled up on Fridays for the weekly ablutions. It was in the scullery in the warmer months and in winter carried to the kitchen and placed in front of the fire. For daily cleaning, we had top-to-toe washing in a bowl in the kitchen. Either that or we'd go to the communal baths where you queued for your immersion. (laughs) You could usually feel the scouring powder under your behind from the previous cleaning. And if you stayed too long, a rap on the door would make you scurry to dry and put on your clothes. We weren't poor. Bathrooms and conveniences in the house were not commonplace as they are today. 60% had no indoor facilities. So much of what we now take for granted was looked upon as sheer luxuries in the 40s. We didn't have fridges, telephones, washing machines or vacuum cleaners. Televisions and cars were the exception rather than the rule. In fact, for Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953, my father and I travelled all the way to Chester to stay with friends who had a television and we watched that wonderfully colourful occasion on a small 12-inch black and white screen. My father was born in 1915 at Kunoa in southwest India into a relatively comfortable family. His forebears had left England for India towards the end of the 18th century. The Atkinses made their life in India and in the military, and as far as we know, none had come back until my father at the time of partition. My paternal grandfather was Church of England and his wife was Catholic, so they employed the rather odd habit of giving alternative religions to alternative children. Daddy was C of E and his brother Gerald was a Catholic. Another son, Oscar, died in infancy. And then there were three sisters, Marjorie, Nora and Dorothy, who died in her 20s from tuberculosis. My mother came from a very ordinary family background, although her mother was a pettit and the family can be traced through wills to Henry VIII. With a French name, they may have been Huguenots escaping religious persecution. The original Pettits were yeoman farmers who lived in Kent, and the original Pettit home, Coldred Court, a beautiful Elizabethan farmhouse near Dover, is still extant. Generations of Pettits lived in Deal, and because it's on the sea and was a naval base, many of the men in the family were mariners and seafarers. When the family fortunes waned, many pettits made their living by smuggling and hoveling. Grandmother was one of the first pettits to leave Deal, possibly because she had an illegitimate child and had to leave the area. Then, having been widowed and left with three sons and a daughter to raise, she married again, and my mother and her brother were the offspring. Mummy left school at 14 and went to work in a drawing office. She was very beautiful. As they had virtually nothing in common, I once asked my father why he married her and was told simply that she was the most beautiful girl around. My father too was extremely handsome with matinee idol good looks. They married at the 
Garrison Church in Woolwich and lived in rented accommodation in Bromley. Mrs Wilson was their landlady, a large, kindly woman whom I remember always smelling of bleach. In the 40s, none but the rich had holidays. However, Mrs Wilson had a beach bungalow at Jaywick on the East Coast and used to take me down there for long weekend breaks. I had many happy hours at the seaside and one overriding memory. That was the man we called Dan Dan the Lavatory Man, who used to come around in the evenings emptying the old Elson toilets with the accompanying perfume. One year there was dreadful flooding in Jaywick and Clacton, and our family never heard from Mrs Wilson again, so we assumed she died in the floods. Memories of my childhood are fragmented, but some remain quite vivid. My parents had moved in with Granny at 109 John Wilson Street. I remember many of the characters who lived in our road. Next door was a Mrs Chapman, who, though her hair was incredibly fine to the point of being almost non-existent, was never seen without metal curlers. Our houses were ugly terraced brick. But one house was different because it had a beautiful bow window and the owner was equally striking, a very well-dressed woman called Nancy Cat. People in the street gossiped about her, don't they always, as they said she had many gentlemen friends. At the end of our road, next to the Star Pub, was a family with a child called a Blue Baby, a very fragile child with auburn hair and freckles, who used to sit in the tiny front garden watching the world go by. She had a hole in her heart. Today it would be operated on, but in the 40s nothing could be done for her, and she died very young. We used to wave to each other as I walked to the bus stop on my way to school in the morning. If the weather was fine and she was outside in the evening, I'd stop and talk to her. Opposite us lived Mary Pannell, a very homely woman, who looked after me when Mummy and Daddy went out. Then there was the tailor, Johnny Heath, whom my mother swears purloined a map and a glove belonging to Granny at the time of her funeral. Who knows whether this was true? The story went that there was money to be had by this map, but it needed money to get at it. I always thought this was the product of Mother's fertile imagination, that she had dreamed up a bricked-up smuggler's tunnel somewhere in Deal with a hoard of precious stones. Fifty years later, when I encountered a pettit who'd done extensive research on the family, I discovered there was some truth in the rumour. It all centred around land rights and many documents that needed to be collated in order to make a claim. By now, any rights the pettits had would have well and truly lapsed. Next door to us was an old bachelor, Mr Blade, who lived with his even more ancient mother. When she died, I was taken next door to pay my respects, and I remember an open coffin with her lying in it. I was very young, and the memory remains as something quite frightening. There was also a chap who came round the streets with a cart shouting, Rag and bones! and collecting items you didn't want, for which he gave you a few old pennies. Folk used to run out with buckets and spades in the hope that his horse would oblige. Good for the roses, they said. Despite Daddy being C of E, he received his education at the hands of the Catholic Brotherhood of St. Patrick at St. Joseph's College, Kunur. Because he had a very good education, and despite not having a great deal of money, Daddy decided to send me to a small private Catholic school in Charlton, south-east London. The convent was run by nuns called Oblates of the Assumption. The church and the house in which the nuns lived 
are still standing, but the school has been replaced by a modern one. I remember the layout of the school and the chapel in particular. The Catholics used to wind up the non-Catholics with stories of ghosts and strange happenings. We used to long to go into the chapel to find out for ourselves. It was at Cholton that I launched myself onto the unsuspecting public as an actress. In front of a very select and captive audience of mums and dads, I played the title role in King Canute, complete with cardboard crown and bath towel royal robe over gym slip. We played to a packed house for all of one afternoon, and the brilliant review we got in the school periodical spurred me on to greater things. My next starring role was as the Wicked Queen in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Mind you, my career practically came to an untimely end when the floodlight box toppled off the stage onto the floor, being restrained only by the back of my foot, which almost parted company from my leg. I'd severed the tendons in my ankle and was off school for many weeks and unable to audition for the next epic at Assumption Productions. I don't remember hearing my parents argue and was blissfully unaware of any tension between them. But when I was seven, an event occurred that was to have a very great bearing on the rest of my life and that of my sister. I'd caught the bus home from school and was nearing our house when I saw a removal van outside. My mother was leaving and taking my baby sister Gillian with her. My father had charge of me and we were to remain at 109. The house was quite large, and at some stage in the intervening years, my mother's brother, wife, and their daughter, who had Down syndrome, had come to live in the top two floors of the house. They needed somewhere to live and could also lend a hand in helping look after me. It wasn't easy for anyone. Daddy had to work and care for me, which meant it was impossible to invite friends home to play because there was no one to organise tea and cakes. Mummy went to live in rented accommodation with my sister. Gillian had to be looked after during the day while my mother worked, and some of the places in which they lived were dire. I remember being taken to visit and finding my little sister sitting with the door of the gas oven open so that she could keep warm. These circumstances must have had a deep emotional effect on both of us. In the 40s, 50s and 60s, divorce was the exception rather than the norm. People stayed together and braved things out. Such was the disgrace that if you were a divorcee, you were not allowed admittance to the Queen's enclosure at Ascot. Huh. Now most of the immediate royal family are themselves divorced, so that ruling has had to go by the board. My father was, as I've already said, incredibly good-looking. In fact, I think he resembled the film star Richard Todd, whom I met in the 80s. Daddy was a disciplinarian, strict but fair. I adored him and we were very close. We shared a twin-bedded room and at weekends I used to love slipping into Daddy's bed for a cuddle and a story. Then when I was about 11, he told me that I wasn't to continue the habit. I'd no idea why. I was totally ignorant of the facts of life. I loved those cuddles and still find cuddling up to the man I love just about the best part of a relationship. Much as I enjoy a sexual relationship, it's the cuddles I can't do without. When I'm in the arms of my loved one, I sleep like a baby. With the domestic help of my aunt and uncle upstairs at 109 John Wilson Street, we muddled through. 
I remember once cooking a meal of bacon and eggs for him far too early, and by the time he got home, the food had congealed and was virtually inedible. But he braved his way through it so as not to upset me. I suppose the seeds of an unusual relationship were sown then. I tried to look after my father, and he tried to be both mother and father to me. He took me to see my mother and sister as often as he could, but regular visits were not easy, as we had no transport. So from the age of seven to eleven, I grew up without really knowing my mother or my sister. I'm not a natural academic, and study was always a hard slog and meant learning by rote. Suppose you'd call me a plodder. I'd begun to pick up the flat vowel sounds of a southeast Londoner, and father, who speaks beautifully, decided to send me to speech and drama lessons. Although I also took ballet lessons, I'd never had the dedication to become a dancer, but my speech and drama, plus my later secretarial skills, have earned me a living for a working lifetime. The 11 plus loomed. I passed with flying colours. So well, indeed, that I was awarded a scholarship at a girls' public school, Christ Hospital. This was where inverse snobbery came into play. Because my father had paid a few pounds a term to have me educated privately at a convent, and we lived in a Labour-controlled London County Council borough, the LCC would not allow me to take up the scholarship. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Plus ça change, plus reste la même chose. I was offered a place at the Catholic convent of St Joseph's at Abbey Wood in South London. The nuns running the convent were the Daughters of Jesus, an order that originated in Brittany, France. My father was in the army and the time was approaching when he had to do a tour of overseas duty. Consequently, he decided to make me a boarder at St Joe's. I'll never forget the total desolation I felt when he took me to school. It was a short walk from the bus stop to the convent, but I wanted it to go on forever. We went through the gates and up some stairs to the front door. A kindly nun led us to a small room where we had to say our farewells. I cried my heart out. Although home life was far from perfect, it was a home and I really wasn't boarding material. I loathe regimentation and even now I hate being awakened from my slumbers by any kind of alarm. All those years ago, our boarding mistress, a short and attractive nun, Mother St. Roman, would stride through the dormitory like the prophet of doom, swathed in black, ringing a great big handbell and giving no quarter. Despite being a non-Catholic, and despite the promises to my father to the contrary, I too was awakened at an ungodly hour every second day to attend Mass. It wasn't the service I minded, but the early rising. We went to Mass before breakfast, and the smell of the incense on an empty stomach has many times brought me close to fainting. Our dormitory had cubicles down the middle for the big girls and high hospital-type beds down the side for wee little ones. I used to long to be a big girl just to have the privacy of a cubicle. Looking back on my boarding days, they weren't too bad, and they do afford me the odd wry smile. <laughs> when I saw the musical Oliver, I was highly amused at the children holding out their dishes for more. As an adult, I rarely eat a cooked breakfast and then only very late in the morning or if I'm travelling on a train. What is it about the magic of eating when you're bulleting through the countryside at over 100 miles an hour, even if the food is indifferent? At school, 
when we'd been awoken at 6am to attend mass, all of us were ravenous. I remember how on the days when we were lucky enough to have bacon, we used to jostle and push to get the congealing bacon fat handed out at the end of the meal. Ugh, makes me shudder to think of it now. Olivio and Benicol were decades into the future. Sunday was an incredible day for boarders. We hardly got up off our knees. There was early morning mass followed by breakfast. No sooner was that over than we got ourselves ready for the walk to the local church. We must have looked smart in our special Sunday berries. They resembled the shape of a halo trimmed with gold braid. We trooped off in a crocodile two by two. After the service, it was back to the convent for lunch, play, homework, afternoon service, tea and then another trip to chapel for benediction. I was greatly influenced by the theatricality of the religious services, received great kindness from most of the nuns and thought very strongly about converting. This desire diminished somewhat when I became a day girl and the overwhelming religiosity wasn't surrounding me 24 hours a day. I was so unhappy as a boarder that my father asked my mother to come back to the family home in Woolwich and look after me. Unfortunately, when she did, we had an uneasy relationship. We'd been apart for over four years and were almost strangers to each other. Also, because they'd gone through much deprivation together, my mother favoured my sister, and whatever she did wrong, I got blamed for. Mind you, I deserved it sometimes, as on the occasion when I took Gillian to the Odeon Cinema with me to see Romeo and Juliet, starring Lawrence Harvey and Susan Schentel. I thought Lawrence Harvey was stunning, and for him, I made my sister sit through the film twice. My mother was beside herself with worry when we got home. I received a sound slap and was barred from the cinema for a month. We had no television or other form of mechanical entertainment, so being deprived of cinema going and Saturday morning pictures was a dire punishment. My sister was six years younger than I, and we were not to achieve a sisterly closeness until we were both much older, partly because we'd been separated during our bonding years and also due to my early marriage and consequent departure for New Zealand and Australia. My work has taken me to live all over the country, so we've always been separated by distance and we have very few interests in common. We don't look much alike, but we have the same smile, laugh and share certain mannerisms. As a little girl, she was also a little minx who loved spying on me and telling tales. I'm a mongrel so far as religion is concerned, baptised Church of England, attended a Catholic convent and went to a Methodist church on Sundays because it was just around the corner. It was here in the choir that I fell in love for the first time for a very tall boy called Robin. I can't remember his surname, but I do know he was old enough to have started work at an electronics company called Siemens. After many months of talking together following the evening service and then going our separate ways, he eventually asked to walk me home. <gasps> Robin was six foot tall and I was under five foot. There were two steps leading up to our front door, so for ease of conversation, I stood on the top step. It was there I received my first kiss to the accompaniment of a rattling letterbox. My sister had heard us talking and used the letterbox as a spy hole. The spring on the flap was quite strong and it came down on her fingers. Poetic justice, some might say. 
At school, I didn't excel at anything except speech and drama. I was hopeless at games. I was hit in the left eye by a tennis ball, which weakened my vision in that eye. At hockey, I was so bad I was placed in goal, and even then managed to end the lesson covered in bruises. And in rounders, I got hit round the head. It takes quite some doing for that to happen. However, I did have a competitive streak in the acting department. I regularly entered drama festivals. I usually came in the first three and always had a cold. Colds are my reaction to nerves. And all the critique forms from those days noted that she appeared to be suffering from a slight cold. I'm no linguist, but on one occasion, a student had gone sick just before a French verse speaking competition. I was asked to stand in, and though I'd little idea what the words meant, learnt them by heart, and had a convincing enough French accent to get through to the finals. It was really quite cheeky of me to enter, and though I didn't win, it was fun trying. The poem was called La Renouille, the frog. I was particularly fond of our English mistress. We were fortunate enough to have her for the five years up to O-level. Mother Mary David, who later left the order and with whom I'm still in contact, possessed endless patience and was an excellent teacher. She would organise verse-speaking contests in our form during term time. I don't know whether it was a desire to show off or to win her approval, but for one of these form contests, I tried to memorise the whole of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. I came dreadfully unstuck and never attempted that kind of bravado again. In my school days, the old Vic Theatre at Waterloo was dedicated to Shakespearean productions. Mother Mary David would organise trips for us to see Shakespeare performed in all his glory by some notable actors. I've still got all my little yellow programmes costing fourpence. I think that's about 2p today and memories of wonderful performances by young men and women in the traditional spear-carrying roles, many of whom have gone on to great prominence in theatre and film. In 1960, the Old Vic presented a production of Romeo and Juliet, with Judi Dench and John Stride in the title roles, but actors such as Tom Courtney and Barbara Lee Hunt were playing minute parts. I remember Paul Rogers, a magnificent Macbeth, on another never-to-be-forgotten occasion, Richard Burton playing Othello to John Neville's Iago. Although I was a great fan of Burton, my absolute heartthrob was John Neville. Queuing at the stage door for as long as Mother Mary David would let us, I nearly swooned on seeing the wonderful Mr Neville in a navy and white spotted dressing gown. Silk, I would imagine. I didn't get his autograph on that occasion, but wrote to him and received a personally signed photograph. It still has pride of place in my autograph book. Although I've never met John Neville, I have met and interviewed many of the stars I admired as a child. I don't regard myself as a scholar, but authority deigned otherwise, and I found myself in the Latin stream at school. In those days, there were two streams doing precisely the same syllabus, except for one notable exception. At the tender age of 11, the demarcation line was into the class that did cookery and everything else, or the one that aspired to Latin and everything else. I really was dreadful at the subject. Despite our wonderful Latin mistress, Miss Cronin, selflessly giving up her lunch hours to take myself and another few dummies for extra Latin. I failed my mop miserably 
and didn't even make it through to the exam proper. I ended up in hospital with suspected appendicitis, which turned out to be a massive attack of nerves. Miss Cronin always perched on a desk when she was teaching, and I still feel bad about the verse one of the girls made up, and we chanted about her. Cronibus satibus on the descalorum, deskibus collapsibus, cronibus on the florum. Weren't we dreadful? I longed to be doing cookery with Mother Mary Patrick, who made the most wonderful fudge I've ever tasted, and whose domain was an outbuilding away from the school, a place called Ker Anna, surrounded by rhododendron bushes, lovingly tended by Joe, the Irish gardener. The only men with whom we had contact at school were the priests who came to take services and dear, gentle Joe. We girls loved him. I don't know if he was married or even if he had a family. I suspect he was totally devoted to the nuns and dedicated his life to being the man about the house for them. He was a gentle giant of a man. I can still see him gardening at Ker Anna in his grey-bibbed trousers, never without a cap on his head, and remember his wonderfully soft Irish voice that would have melted a heart of stone. From 1953 to 1957, when my mother came back to the house in Woolwich to look after me, I was a day girl at St Joe's. I was a conscientious and hard worker and regretted I wasn't having as much fun as a lot of the other girls appeared to. Also, most of the girls lived very close to the school and I was a 20-minute bus ride away, so it was difficult to integrate. We had to rely on public transport. Few parents had cars, School runs, parties and sleepovers were decades into the future. Also, my mother worked, so I wasn't in a position to ask friends home to tea. Boys started to enter the equation with most of the girls. No one looked at me. <laughs> Having been a reasonably attractive child, I was turning into an incredibly plain teenager. I remember a good-looking boy called Ken, who used to wait at a bus stop near the school. I'd be on the top deck looking with longing and willing him to look up. He never even looked in my direction and was obviously totally unaware of my existence. While my father was away on service in Singapore, I'd often spend the summer holidays with his close friends down in Sussex. Bert Manley was in the army like father and his wife Jen was a housekeeper for the Lassells family at Woolbeeding House in Sussex. The Manleys were warm and welcoming people and made me feel part of their family. Although I lived the life of a townie, I relished the freedom of the countryside and loved my holidays with them. Life was easy and our pleasures were simple. Rafting on the river, long walks, gathering berries and uh, scrumping apples. <laughs> Nobody worried about letting us out to roam the countryside and we had so much innocent fun. On one occasion, the Manley's offspring, David and Daphne and I, went to the cinema in Midhurst. It was a long and late show and we caught the last bus home. It was about a mile's walk from the bus stop down the lane to Woolbeeding House, totally dark and no street lighting. We were going past the churchyard, scaring ourselves silly with talk of ghosts, when we heard a weird noise. All three of us ran for our lives. It was only in the cold light of day we realised that far from some ghoulish spectre, it was probably a cow in a neighbouring field. Being with the Manleys was almost my first taste of puppy love. Their son, 
a highly intelligent young man, was four years older than I. Four years doesn't sound much, but when a girl is 14 and a boy 18, the difference might as well be 20 years. I used to go fishing with David, and the highlight of my existence was the approbation that greeted the worms I dug up for his fishing rod. I was terribly hurt when, some years later, I was a bridesmaid at his sister's wedding, and David announced his engagement to a German girl he'd met in Berlin while doing his national service. I remember fleeing from the room to the ladies and crying hysterically. As an adult, I only saw David twice, when he invited me to lunch to ask for professional advice about television, first for his daughter and then for a business colleague. He died recently at a hospice. His sister Daphne told me of his illness, and when I asked whether she thought he'd like to see me, she replied in the affirmative. I saw him twice in the last weeks of his life, and while I was massaging his cold hands, among his last words to me were, I should have married you. Life would have been very different for both of us. He was a true academic, and I think the life of a wife of a teacher at a public school might have suited me. I would have had at least four children, been bountiful to his charges at the school, and been all the things I ended up not being. Father came back from Singapore in 1957. I was in for a total shock. He came back with a wife, Avis. I didn't even know that he and my mother were divorced. I presume they must have thought I was better off not knowing. I should have gone out to Singapore for a holiday during father's three-year tour of duty, and I'm sure he would have prepared the ground for telling me the news. It was the right of all the children of the military to make one visit in a three-year posting, but it was the time of the Suez crisis and my trip was cancelled. Perhaps things might have been different if I'd met Avis on their home ground. It was a difficult time for the three of us. There I was, having spent so much of my adolescence as the apple of my father's eye and being a total daddy's girl, and suddenly there was this rival for his affections. Many years later, I was to learn firsthand and from the other side the trauma of step relationships. At the time, I resented my stepmother and didn't understand the difficulties of being a step-parent. I think I was angry with my father, who'd chosen another woman and had divided allegiances, I was probably a thoroughly objectionable teenager. My stepmother had had a career in the WRAC, Women's Royal Army Corps, was not used to domesticity and had married my father in Singapore where everyone had servants. She came back to a ready-made family, not much idea about running a house and a troublesome relationship with a teenage stepdaughter. It was to be several decades before we understood each other and became friends. Although my mother and I had not been close in the intervening years, she was my mother, and when I heard her criticised, I took her side. She, in turn, did her fair share of criticism of the new wife, and I was like a piggy in the middle, as is the case in the majority of step relationships. I had taken seven O-levels at 15 and passed them. I wanted to do A-levels and go to drama school or university, but my family were not overburdened with money. In those days, only 3% of pupils went to university and grants were almost non-existent. Tuition was free, but accommodation wasn't. There were no coffee shops, 
few restaurants, no way to earn money to pay for board and lodging. An added financial complication arose when I discovered the sideboard groaning with orange juice. My stepmother was pregnant. I was 16. The last thing in the world I wanted was a baby in the family. Regardless, I set myself the task of knitting an outfit for my sister Mandy. I didn't realise how quickly babies grow, and by the time I'd completed the outfit, it was too small for her. Daddy and I still argue to this day over how I came to do secretarial training. He maintains he didn't know I wanted to act or go to university, and I believe he pushed me into technical college. Be that as it may, I couldn't have had a better training for the work I was to do later in life. Because I was only 15, too young to go on to another educational establishment, I had to fill in a year in the sixth form. My father and stepmother were living near Croydon, and I entered Wallington County Grammar School for Girls. It was probably an excellent establishment, but I missed the caring attitude of the nuns and felt myself to be just a statistic on a large register. However, in that year, I gained another two O-levels in German and economics while I was marking time waiting to go to secretarial college. My choice of career was relatively limited as many of the jobs that exist today simply weren't around when I was at school. On the one hand, the young today have enormous choice and a wonderful array of exciting futures, but they're faced with great competition for jobs. There was very little unemployment in my teens. In fact, there were 10 million fewer people than there are today. And if you wanted a job, you could invariably get one. I don't think benefit was as widespread then as it is today. I did my year at Yule County Technical College and left with a certificate from the Royal Society of Arts to say that I was proficient in the principles of accounts, commerce, shorthand and typewriting. How on earth I ever passed accounts and commerce is anybody's guess. My system of accounts is that when the books don't balance, I borrow money from savings to put into my bank account, sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Having been thwarted in my desire to go to drama school, I decided the next best thing was to get as close as possible to an affiliated industry. I applied to join the BBC, took a test, passed, and was offered a job in the Programme Correspondence section, PCS, which dealt with listeners' queries and complaints. I was to earn the princely sum of £6.10, shillings, £6.50 per week, £2.10 went on my keep at home, another £1.10 on train fares, and the remainder served to pay for lunches, clothes and entertainment. You wouldn't get too far in a London taxi today for £6. I must tell you, I was offered a job in an ad agency for £14 a week, but I wanted to work for the BBC and that I did. I was very proud of being part of that vast organisation, affectionately known as Auntie by most who worked for her. I quickly joined the studio amateur dramatic group and the sailing club, worked hard, was enjoying life and relative newfound freedom. As I was still living at home, my father demanded that I had to be home by 10.30pm. The BBC was once a superb employer, looking after you virtually from cradle to grave. 
and it enjoyed an excellent reputation for in-service training schemes and attachments. The joke was that the BBC was the training ground for ITV. So many folk cut their professional teeth there, trained at the BBC's expense, and then moved on. One of their training establishments was in Marylebone Road, almost opposite Baker Street tube station. The building has gone now, replaced by yet another soulless concrete edifice. I had to attend an induction course there and remember the rickety old lift, which bounced up and down several times before it came to a halt on the designated floor. It was a slow progress using that lift, so one day, when I was in danger of being late for a lecture, I decided my own two feet were quicker and went herring up the steps, only to butt headfirst into an extremely tall gentleman. As I raised my eyes to apologise, I went weak at the knees. I was gazing at that wonderful black singer, the late Paul Robeson. I blurted an apology and can still see his lovely smile and hear his beautiful voice as he excused me. That was my first contact one might say, with the famous. I still thrill to this day when I hear his dark black velvet voice singing the title song from Sounders of the River. My boss in PCS was a Mrs Kit Cat. She had a feline face which suited her name, was built like a stick insect and smoked like a chimney. I can see her now. I loathe smoking and as a child, a punishment for being naughty was to be sent for my parents' cigarettes, which I used to collect in a brown paper bag. I so hated the smell of them and wouldn't touch them for all the tea in China. Mrs K's smoking, plus the fact that I had ambition, meant I didn't stay long in PCS. Jobs within the BBC are posted on notice boards, and there was one going as junior secretary to the science unit. I applied for and got the position and went to work in offices just to the left of the clock in Broadcasting House, BH. I mention the clock because whenever I walk into BH, I remember where it all started for me. I don't know why or how I got that particular job, because at school I failed my science subjects miserably and it was a wonder that I kept my head above water. The science unit comprised a senior producer, a wonderful, quietly spoken Abaddonian, Dr. Archie Clough, a junior producer, mad on the scouting movement, Dr. David Edge, Caroline Post, a senior secretary who had a love-hate relationship with a Lambretta scooter, and a junior secretary, me. Our regular output was a scientific quiz called Who Knows, and two other regular programmes, Science Survey and Science Review. We also did extremely erudite one-off programmes, so technical and high-flown, I barely understood what I was typing as I pounded away at the keys. I do remember one programme was about DNA, an absolute breakthrough in the 50s, and a total mystery to me. As speakers, we had top men from the scientific world. Professor Jip Wells, a zoologist, son of H.G. Wells, who wrote War of the Worlds. Professor Peter Medawar, who was destined to share the Nobel Prize in 1960, the father of transplants, and John Maynard Smith, a mathematician and biologist. After Caroline left the unit, I stepped into her shoes, though not on her grade, a typical ploy of the BBC, and I had to accompany Dr. Clough to gatherings, 
such as the annual meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. Initially, I was petrified. How was little Janet Atkins, hopeless at science and miserable failure at chemistry, going to hold her own with these learned people? I soon learnt that though they were experts in their subjects, they were kindly and not averse to a chat about the world of entertainment with a young secretary. And I felt very honoured when Archie Clode took me for dinner at a super restaurant in Oxford, the Elizabeth, during one of the annual meetings. It made such an impression on me, I even remember what I had to eat, trout with almonds served on a rectangular plate. I worked hard during the day and had an extremely full social life. I joined the local theatre group, the Harlequins. It was the best amateur society in my area and was conveniently near my home in Wallington, Surrey. Their standards were high, their shows exciting. We staged the world amateur premiere of Expresso Bongo, in which I played the Cockney sister of the singing hero. I think Cliff Richard played the part of the hero in the West End show. We also staged The Mad Woman of Shiloh, in which I played Irma, and much of my spare time was spent with the Harlequins or at a local youth club attached to St Mary's Church, Bennington. St Mary's Youth Club, SMYC, also maintained a high standard of amateur dramatics, and I remember receiving my very first corsage of flowers, heavily wired and heavenly perfumed hyacinths, on stage at the end of The Happiest Days of Your Life, in which I played the vicar's wife. I was only about 20 years too young for the part. I enjoyed working at the BBC and was fascinated by the characters in Talks Department, BH. The poet Louis McNeese was a producer, as was a white Russian, Anna Kalin, who was rumoured to have had a long-standing affair with the expressionist painter Oskar Kokotchka. Anna was so elegant with her grey hair swept back in a French pleat, and on her little finger she wore an exquisite baroque black pearl set in diamonds, which is where I'm sure my love of pearls originated. Our family didn't have any jewels, so I doubly admired them on this attractive woman. Then there was Owen Leeming, a radio producer destined to alter my life dramatically and remain a friend for life. We often talked in the corridor, and I suppose looking back we were attracted to one another. But Owen was involved with someone else, and though the affair had almost run its course, he wouldn't have entertained the idea of cheating on his girlfriend. Coming from a broken home and being looked after by my father between the ages of seven and eleven, I was very naive. I imagine it would be difficult for any father to discuss sex with a daughter, but 50 years ago it would have been impossible. My mother was from a generation where you didn't discuss the subject, it just happened. School wasn't much use either, being a Catholic convent. Sex was a taboo subject, and the closest we came to being relieved of our ignorance was in biology lessons when we were taught about the birds and the bees. Somehow, I couldn't see the connection. Consequently, when I first went to work at the BBC at 17 and a half, I knew nothing of life and was highly flattered that the toast of the BBC studio amateur dramatic group, a man 15 years older than I and much sought after by the ladies, should have found me attractive. I'd no brothers and didn't really know how to cope with men, but I found the attention of this urbane and charming man highly gratifying. 
John had played the field, and why he was attracted to an innocent young thing like me is a mystery. How I wish he hadn't happened, but he did, and our relationship was the cornerstone of the rest of my life. I was sexually naive. He wasn't. If only Owen Leeming had been a free agent at the time, I don't think the liaison with John Staple would have developed. John and I had a stormy relationship, many quarrels and making up. Then he asked me to marry him. Our engagement night was spent at the Apollo Theatre Victoria, where we saw West Side Story, starring the American George Shakiris. It was wonderful. The show was like nothing ever staged before, electrifying, dynamic and different. I suppose even then I realised that I wanted more from life than a secretarial job and domesticity. Because of the strained relationship between my stepmother and myself, with my father in the middle, I wasn't happy at home and wanted to flee the nest, so I suppose I was ripe for the picking. I was heading for a disaster and I think I knew it. My engagement ring came off and on with monotonous regularity. On one occasion, John opened the bonnet of his mini, put the ring on the fan belt and threatened to destroy it unless I put it back on my finger. In the 60s, people didn't live together. If we had, I know we'd never have married. Thinking about the film The Graduate, I should have run screaming from the church. John was an obvious womanizer, and by the time of our marriage, I no longer loved him, and we rowed constantly. At this period of my life, I wasn't close enough to my mother to confide in her, and I certainly couldn't discuss my relationship with my stepmother. People were aware of our differences and our rows, and no one could understand why I agreed to marry him. I'm sure people will find it hard to believe in this permissive day and age, but John and I didn't have a full-blown relationship before our marriage. We did indulge in what was archaically called heavy petting. I was young and fertile, and John should have known better. In my ignorance, I believed that you could only fall pregnant through penetrative sexual intercourse. How wrong I was. To my horror, just before my 19th birthday, I missed a period and then another. Some weeks later, on a referral from a GP, I found myself sitting with John in front of a psychiatrist who held my future in his hands. You are not emotionally unstable and there is no medical or psychological reason why you should not have this baby. We walked out of his office with me totally stunned. I'd expected John to look after me, and here I was, an immature, emotionally needy young woman, being told that I would have to become a mother whether I wished to or not. At that time, there was no right to abortion. A cold, clinical psychiatrist gave one the choice between unwanted motherhood or a backstreet job. Coming from a broken home, being naive and with absolutely no maternal instincts, I felt as though I'd been sentenced to life and had the key thrown away. What were we going to do? Even at the age of 34, John also had no desire to become responsible for a new life. I knew that if I gave birth, I would not be able to hand over the child for adoption. We would have made dreadful parents. As far as we could see, there was only one alternative, and we took it. Although I've tried to blot it out of my mind, I can't. 
It was a seedy, demeaning process, and the sense of guilt is with me even now. John found a doctor who'd been struck off the medical register and operated from a dress in Kingston-upon-Thames. We were advised to book a room for the night somewhere in the vicinity for my recuperation and, I suppose, proximity to the doctor if something went wrong. John picked me up after work and we drove in silence to Kingston, where we checked into a B&B. Our room was stifling in its smallness, hardly room to move around the bed. I was scared stiff and had to be anaesthetised with whisky, a drink I loathe to this day. We made our way to a large house in a nearby leafy street with a wrought iron gate and long path leading to the imposing front door. It was, to all intents and purposes, a normal family home. Sadly, it was a house of dark secrets, shame and guilt. How many other girls before me and for many years after went through the same demeaning process? The whole operation was seedy. The room was dimly lit and a kettle whistled in the corner, boiling the water for sterilising the instruments. And there was him. Naturally, I never knew his name. But I do remember that he took advantage of my inebriated state to touch me in an intimate way. I felt tarnished and dirty. The atmosphere was surreal. I cannot express the guilt strongly enough. It just came over me in waves and did so for many years. After the operation... John and I returned to our rented room and a night filled with tears of remorse. In my opinion, the Catholic religion uses guilt like building bricks. They accumulate around you, creating an edifice from which you cannot escape. I felt so badly about my sin, I knew I had to pay for it. In my cockeyed logic, I thought if I agreed to marry John, I could somehow cleanse myself. I knew I didn't love him had mistaken age for maturity, and was looking for a father figure. I was desperately unhappy, in total turmoil, in, and just didn't know to whom to turn for advice. But I had to expiate my sin. Four days before our wedding, my nerves gave way, and I, I, knew, I knew I simply had to get out of the situation. On the way home from work, I changed direction, got off the tube at Charing Cross, and caught another to take me to where John lived in East London. I repeat, there was no or very little living together in the late 1950s. As I walked along the pavement from the tube station, I tried to gather my courage. Knocking on the front door, I was hardly over the threshold before blurting out, I'm very sorry, but I can't go through with this marriage because I don't love you. Oh dear. I thought it would be a simple case of John accepting that the relationship was over We'd get out of the wedding arrangements as quickly as possible. Instead, he talked to me persuasively and assured me it's only pre-wedding nerves. Besides, all the arrangements have been made and we've received presents. You can't let everyone down. You'll be all right. But I wasn't. Daddy must have sensed my unhappiness because even in the car going to the church, he assured me that it wasn't too late to change my mind. Poor Daddy had saved up to give me the best wedding he could afford with a reception at the Aerodrome Hotel just off the Pearly Way, Croydon. I was all trussed up in a nylon wedding dress from Feynman's of Oxford Street and my hair, which had gone too chestnut at the hairdressers, was primped into a beehive set off by a coronet. 
I cried throughout most of the ceremony. People are used to brides crying with loving emotion, but I was crying with sheer terror. Never mind, thought I, it's bound to be all right later, but it wasn't. The wedding breakfast passed in a haze. You know the feeling you get when you're detached from reality and watching yourself from the outside? All the friends and relations were laughing and having a lovely time, but not the bride. All too soon it was time to change into my going-away outfit, a lovely golden-coloured suit set off by a green pillbox hat. In traditional fashion, the guests gathered to wish us well as we climbed into John's mini, suitably daubed in the usual wedding greetings, and dragging an old boot tied to the exhaust. Although our honeymoon was to be spent in a and b in Cornwall, John had pushed the boat out and booked us a wedding night at Skindles, a rather posh hotel in Maidenhead, which attracted in those days high-profile guests like Churchill and Princess Margaret. The hotel became derelict, but now it's a very upmarket development and boasts a Rue restaurant. Far from being a wonderfully loving and romantic experience, I spent most of the time in tears. Frigidity was setting in fast. I can't remember anything about the honeymoon, except that it rained most of the time, which was suitably appropriate for the commencement of this disastrous relationship. John wasn't a bad person, but he was a charmer, a womanizer, prone to being dramatic and a normal heterosexual male. To be married to a snivelling, unhappy, frigid girl woman must have been an impossible situation for him. It's little wonder that he turned his attention back to an ex-girlfriend, older and more experienced than I, and happy to oblige him. We staggered on in our increasingly unhappy relationship for seven months until one night I went for a bath and locked the bathroom door. He was incensed and a row ensued until in his rage he threw himself against the door and broke the lock. He hit me round the head. I know what people mean when they say they saw stars because I did. Although a highly dramatic man, John wasn't an habitual wife-beater. I knew I didn't love him, was making both of us desperately unhappy, and was frightened that the situation might arise where I would become pregnant. He immediately apologised, but that was the point at which I knew I had to end the farce. Next morning, after he'd gone to work, I put my toiletries in a small bag and left with just the clothes I stood up in. The irony of the situation was that I'd paid our rent out of my weekly salary and hadn't got enough for the train fare to my mother's home in Windsor, so I went to John's parents in London instead. They were very kind and understanding and not at all judgmental. I remember John's father commenting that he hadn't expected the relationship to last as John was very much a bachelor and was used to playing the field. I went back to the flat a few days later to collect some clothes but John had changed the locks. He did deliver a parcel of clothing to Broadcasting House for me, but I never saw most of my personal belongings again or the wedding presents given by my family and friends. How had I reached this point in my life? I'm sure that much of my behaviour had arisen out of the dysfunctional family life I'd lived through from a very early age and my need to be loved. My sister also went on to make two disastrous marriages and had relationships with totally inappropriate men. Owen Leeming told me he watched a person he described as bubbly, laughing and full of life turn into a morose, depressed creature. 
By the time my marriage was over, so too was Owen's relationship, and we often talked in the corridor of BH, with me spilling out my problems to him. So when I left John, it was Owen who helped me find rooms to rent in Eaton Road, Chalk Farm. The accommodation was in a large house owned and run by our retired matron. You could not only see yourself in the floors, you could have eaten off them. The place was so pristine. As we lodgers came through the front door, her stentorian tones would ring out, reminding us to change into our slippers. It was an all-female establishment, and men were not allowed into the sanctum under any circumstances. In the late 50s, we still experienced pea super fogs. One evening, when I returned to my rooms, a figure loomed out of the fog at the front gate. It was John, demanding to speak with me. I was frightened of him, but he simply wouldn't go away. Somehow, I managed to smuggle him into the house, past the dragon, and went to the shared kitchen to make us a drink. I'm sure he was only being histrionically dramatic, but when I returned to my room, he was sitting in a chair pulling a pair of my stockings through and through his hands. For one fleeting moment, I thought he was going to strangle me. John liked being dramatic, and I'm sure this is what he hoped I'd think. I don't remember the substance of our conversation, but I got the strength from somewhere to resist his demand for my return. I knew it would be disastrous. Meanwhile, Owen was an absolute rock, understanding, helpful, intelligent, mature. He was just what I needed at that period in my life. There was still a strong moral climate in our country in the 50s, and he too lived in an establishment with a landlady who frowned on any assignations. Owen lived at the corner of Cadogan Square, and I remember the first meal we had together after he'd managed to smuggle me into the flat. He cooked me steak with garlic, a taste with which I was unfamiliar, followed by tinned guavas and cream eaten out of pool pottery cups because he didn't have any pudding bowls. I've never experienced guavas before, and to this day they remind me of Owen and our first night together. Was I in love or was I in need? Perhaps it's difficult to separate the two. Owen brought me emotional security and was also to bring about an enormous change in my life. The change was one that greatly affected my future. The nerve-wracking experience of being smuggled into Owen's accommodation, although great fun, became a strain and we decided to move in together. Tut tut. <laughs> Our flat was in the basement of a house in Oakfield Road. It was owned by the Marquis of Queensbury, who'd just opened his reject china shop in Chelsea. We looked out onto a small paved courtyard where his lordship's dogs relieved themselves. Well, I suppose they had to go somewhere, and it was better than fouling the streets. It was most definitely not glamorous accommodation. By this time, John, quite rightly, had decided to divorce me, and I couldn't be bothered to go through the process of a counter-petition because of his adultery. Owen and I had to experience the slightly quaint, amusing business of being visited by a private detective. A little man in a bowler hat came by prior appointment. He didn't have to witness anything other than the fact we shared a double bed. You didn't have to be caught in flagrante delicto. The chap doffed his bowler at the front door, exposing a shiny bald pate. It was all so silly we got a fit of the giggles. 
we showed him the bed and offered him a cup of tea. He refused on the grounds of impropriety. It really was farcical. Why is it assumed that a couple only have sex in bed? And would the grounds for divorce have been acceptable had we had twin beds? The mind boggles. So far as my marriage to John Staple was concerned, that was that. Moreover, he had blocked my path to promotion and better things at work. I had applied for and obtained an attachment to BBC Television as a production assistant. When John heard about it, he conveyed to me that life would be very difficult for me if I took up the position. I don't know if he could or would have done anything but I had no desire to experience any more unpleasantness. So I stayed working in sound radio at the BBC, going to speech and drama lessons and taking Guildhall exams in my spare time. How very different life would have been had I become a production assistant and maybe a producer or director. Blessed security and a decent pension. (laughs) 